wanted to let you know, parents, if I could have your attention for a moment, especially if you have kids in here, um, you might just want to look at the notes today and look at the topic today and make sure that that is something that is appropriate if you have kids in here. Um, It's the next passage in God's Word, so we don't want to skip it. It's important to talk about issues of purity and issues that uh, deeply affect the church, I believe. I would, I would argue it is the major battleground where Satan is trying to stop the effectiveness of God's church. And unfortunately, successfully so in many cases. And so we'll be talking about purity this morning. And I've titled this morning, Pursuing Purity in an Immoral World. A few weeks ago, Susie and I were gone for our anniversary and we went and saw a movie together with, without the kids. It was really quite a, a unique experience. It was really nice. Um, not, I love my kids, but yeah, you know what I mean. And in the middle of the movie, Susie gets a text. And, and, and she, we, we looked at the text during the movie, sorry. Um, <laughs> looked at the text and it was a text advertising pornography. Just, just right to the phone, right in the middle of, of the day and say, hey, if you go to this site, and we're like, that's really strange. And afterward, we looked at my phone and I had the same text. And it just sort of, it shocked me and it shouldn't have shocked me all at once. I'm like, okay, how, how are they getting random telephone numbers? Are we to a point where we are just randomly texting, offering invitations to look at porn? Offering invitations that are sexual in nature? That should disturb us, but it's reflective of the culture that we live in. Sexual temptation is everywhere, isn't it? You can't drive down the freeway without trying to look away from some billboards. Virtually every TV show, it seems, movies, and and all kinds of things are written from porn and how accessible pornography is to a culture-wide acceptance of premarital sex. In fact, I would say more than an acceptance, an expectation at this point. So much so that if, if, a, if someone newsworthy is a virgin when they get married, it's news, isn't it? When did this become news? When did this become the new normal? And that's the environment we live in. Mocking those that choose to wait until marriage. Some stats I was reading from Pure Desire Ministries. They did a survey in evangelical churches and the use of pornography in evangelical churches. 68% of Christian men admitted to viewing pornography regularly. Just let that sink in for a minute. 68%. 50% of pastors admitted to viewing pornography regularly. It should send a chill through the room. Greatest, greatest group, greatest demographic using pornography, 11 to 17 year old boys. I think of my son. My son turns 11 in, in, in nine months. And this is the world, the culture that he has to remain pure in, that we have to remain pure in. I, I read those stats and, and just was shocked by them. And most likely, those are a little low. Because that's the men that admitted to it. And so we come today to a very difficult subject to talk about. It may be something that you go home and say, I can't believe we talked about that in church today. But I would argue I can't believe we don't talk about it sometimes in church. Because it is that important to our ability to serve God our ability to commune with God. It's important to our marriages. It's important to our children. Important enough for the Holy Spirit to put it in God's Word. To say we need to be on guard. We are at a crisis. A sexual crisis in our culture. If there was ever a time for the church to stand and live godly lives in an ungodly world, this is it. And this is a subject that we want to take seriously. You see, the world is okay with it. Some of the lies that the world t- talks about about sexual immorality, and I'm not I'm I'm including pornography, but I'm talking about affairs. I'm talking about premarital sex. I'm talking about 
just all anything that is this this sexual immorality outside of marriage. You know, one of the lies that we often hear is, well, as long as it's legal, as long as it's two consenting adults. In fact, have you heard some of the recent stories of what's happening on college campuses? They're coming out with charts of what you have to ask and what the answer has to be for consent. And then you're okay to do whatever you want. Another lie the world tells us, who does it hurt, really? Another lie, it's just sex, it's no big deal. If it feels good, do it. That one's been around for, for all of eternity, or for all of, of time. And so we come to a very difficult issue. I, I need to say right from the start as well, this is not just a male issue. Okay, so, so ladies, don't check out on me this morning. This is a male and female issue. The thing about affairs, it takes two. The reasons for getting involved might be different. For, for you ladies, it might be the, the need to feel approved. Oh, someone finally listens to me. To feel accepted. To be cared for. For guys, it may be very different. But it's sin either way. It's temptation either way. And I've seen enough and, and I've, I've dealt with enough situations to know that this is both a male and a female issue. And it is rocking our churches. It is rocking our marriages in this country. And so we come to today's text with a lot in common at the church at Corinth. You know, we've been talking about that the church at Corinth was trying to live godly lives in the middle of a very ungodly culture, a two-port culture, a sailor culture. And this is true here. In Corinth, it was a society that was loaded with sexual temptation. Remember, we talked about even prostitution, and the temples had prostitutes, and you had the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and, and over a thousand prostitutes at one point. That, that was the way you worshipped, was to come in and see a prostitute. And it was considered, it wasn't just legal, it was considered normal. It was considered an acceptable form of worship. In fact, as in some of the history, you can read of some of the festivals to gods and just some of the get-togethers, and they would have their big meal, and then after the meal, there would be prostitutes available. And that was just an accepted part of their culture. So they knew what it was like, and they knew the, the, the problem of sexual temptation. You know, I mentioned in the intro that, that the term to Corinthianize was to practice sexual immorality. Not just in Corinth, but in the known world of the time. That was just the term they used for it. And so how is the church to be different? I believe we can gain so much from 1 Corinthians 6 to see what God told the church at Corinth and to say, what is God telling us today? Will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6? How did God challenge the church to be different? Keep in mind, this is a huge, huge topic. We could this, Books are written on this. All kinds of strategies are written on this. And we're just going to hit this passage today. And so, my prayer is that it just reorients our, reorients our thinking a little bit. See, the problem, if we just view solving the problem as a physical issue, the problem won't be solved. We need to view it as a mental issue because this is where the problem is. And so Paul here, through the Holy Spirit, begins to address the mental aspects and say, you need to rethink how you think about sexuality. You need to rethink how you think about marriage. You need to rethink how you think of your bodies in relationship to the Lord God Almighty and what you're created to do. So this morning, let's rethink a little bit. Probably things that I, that I pray that you've heard, but things that challenge us to take this issue seriously, to not be normal. In this case, to be a little weird. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> we talked about at the beginning, the first half of this, lawsuits between believers. And the end of that, there's this description of those that are, are committing sins and regularly committing sins. And 
You have, you have issues of the sexually immoral listed there. Idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuality, thieves, and greedy. And then verse 11 is, it serves as sort of a hinge into the section we're going to be talking about. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? It's okay to say amen at verses like that. We're washed. We're sanctified. God has changed us through His blood on the cross. And Paul uses that as an introduction to the next section where he begins to talk about what that means. What does it mean to be changed by the Spirit of God? What does it mean to flee those things, to run from those things and say, that is not me anymore? And so he helps us rethink. In verse 12, we get to the section that we have this morning. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. And he begins to deal with the, the situation of sexual immorality and, and how to combat the temptation, how to fight it, how to stay pure in an ungodly world. And he's probably dealing with some issues he's heard of in the church. Remember, Chloe's people came and talked to him and, and he heard about what was going on at the church of Corinth. And so he's probably here responding to some things he's heard of that are happening in the church. And as we go through it, you'll see he's, he's probably responding to some very specific sayings that are going around in the church to justify all kinds of sin and all kinds of behavior. And so he's answering one of the questions is, is it okay to be in the company of a prostitute? It's okay in society. What, what's the Christian response to that? But this section is more than just dealing with prostitution. It's dealing with a broader scope of morality, immorality, and purity. So we want to look at it in that way. This morning we'll blaze through six principles to help us combat the temptation of sexual immorality. And again, a lot more is written, and I'm going to point you to some resources at the end because this is that serious. But let's start at verse 12, and we'll read 12 through 14. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So Paul here begins by, by jumping in to as soon as they heard some of those sayings that, he's, that Paul mentions, they would know what he's talking about, but he's talking about the, the field of sexual immorality and that issue that's going around in the church. And the first point that I want to unpack and go through Our bodies are designed to forever glorify the Lord. Don't be ruled by your desires. Our bodies are designed to forever glorify the Lord. Don't be ruled by your desires. And so Paul starts by reorienting our thinking to what our desires are, what our tendencies are in this body, and reminding us what we're designed and created to do. So we start in verse 12, All things are lawful for me. Do you see the quotes around that? Most of your translations have the quotes. The reason that that's in quotes is it looks like here it's mentioned twice, a little bit later in chapter 10 it's going to come up again. This looks like he's quoting a saying that was going around the Christian church. Possibly in Corinth as a whole, but this looks more like something that's specific to the church. The idea being, and maybe even from Paul's teaching about grace and law, remember you're not under the law, you're under grace. And so this saying was going around, well all things are lawful for me. And the idea is, see, I can do anything I want because I'm forgiven. And I'll be forgiven. Do you see the danger of that? And so this was the saying that they would use to justify anything they wanted to do. Any sin. Because we're under grace, not the law. God doesn't want a legalistic obedience. We're under grace. He loves me no matter what I do. And they were missing the fact that because we love God, we respond in obedience to Him not in legalistic adherence to some law, but because we love Him and want to serve Him. And so Paul takes that phrase, all things are lawful for me, and he uses a style here called a diatribe style where he sort of imagines a conversation. And you'll see that actually three times in this this one section. You say this, and then he answers it. You say this, 
And then he answers it. And he'll do that several times. And so he starts with, all things are lawful for me. And he begins to deal with this, this fact that they are justifying sexual immorality. And they are attempting to justify it spiritually. So we have some thoughts on, on Christian liberty here. Some things, and we'll, we'll see this applied, some things are okay for me that I have to think about what happens in the church. But that doesn't mean all things are. So Paul gives us a couple of guidelines on Christian liberty here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And this is a, a, a great first question to ask when we're thinking about something that, that maybe isn't specifically prohibited in the Scripture. Now, sexual immorality is, which is why this is su- such a heinous situation. But for us, maybe there's situations that we're like, well, I don't know, the Scripture doesn't directly address this. And the first thing Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Is this helpful? Is this good, not only for me, but to the body of Christ? The idea of beneficial there or helpful there, depending on the translation you have, is, is this not only to my good, but does this build up others? Is this for others good? Flip over, you're in your Bibles right there, just flip over to, to 1 Corinthians 12.7. 1 Corinthians 12.7. Same word. Let's look at a couple different ways of, of how Paul uses it to help us understand that I'm not just making up that this is about everyone else's good as well. 1 Corinthians 12.7 To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Same word. For the good of the whole. For the common good. It will come back up in 1 Corinthians 10.23 and 24. In fact, that's where the saying's there again. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he goes on and, and parallels that to explain what he means. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so Paul is using a logical argument back at them. They say, well, everything's okay for me, you know, because I'm under grace, so I can sin sexually. It's not a problem. And the first thing Paul says, so have you thought about who else you're affecting? Have you thought about, is this good for your walk with Christ? Is this good for their walk with Christ? Because the thing about sexual sin is it always is affecting others negatively. Whether it be the relationships close to us. Whether it be the person we're committing that sin with. And you might say, well, well porn, that's different. You know, it's, 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 it's one-sided. No, no, it's not. As those girls are in the sex trade and, and being abused and being mistreated and misused. And we're contributing to that. Is this for the good of the body of Christ? Is this for the good of those around me? This is such an important argument to think about when we think about our behavior and what we should be doing. He goes on and and he says it again. All things are lawful for me. And he gives another logical response. But I will not be dominated by anything. The ideas of control being under the power of. And he says, if anything begins to control us other than the Holy Spirit, we know from other writings, if anything controls us other than the Holy Spirit, then that is wrong. We should run. And the thing about sexual sins is it grabs hold and controls like nothing else. It dominates. It exercises an addictive power over us. A consuming power. In fact, in Proverbs 5.22, a passage where he's talking about beware of the, the adulterous woman, beware of going into her. The proverb says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. Sexual immorality has a way of doing that like no other. It entraps, it ensnares. Studies have shown that, that even someone viewing porn regularly it's not enough to keep viewing the same porn. It has to get worse and worse or more explicit and more explicit to still tantalize the mind. It grabs and it sucks in and it entraps. And Paul's using a, an interesting play on words here. All things are lawful for me. The idea, well, nothing, you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm free. And then he says, but you're being dominated. You're not free. Affairs, once you're in, they're incredibly difficult to stop. Once we start a sexual relationship, it is, it is so much easier to stay in that than it is to stop. 
Do not be fooled by the lie that it's just sex and that it has no consequences. One of the the many graffitis at Berkeley University in California in the late 1960s was sex makes free. Talk about a direct lie. It creates bonds. It creates an ensnarement when it's a sinful immorality, a situation of sinful immorality. We need to be controlled by the Lord, not our desires. What are they doing here? They're saying, I have these desires. I'm going to justify it spiritually instead of finding a way to combat them. He goes on in verse 13 and and he's talking about now the purpose of our bodies. And he uses another phrase that they probably said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Depending on the translation, it depends on where that ending quote mark is. Some put it after food, some put it after other. Probably that whole sentence should be in quotes. That whole sentence is probably what they were saying. And the idea of food is for the stomach and the stomach for food is this. It's all natural. It's just natural tendencies. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat because it's just a natural bodily function. And they were using that to argue sexual sexual immorality. When you have a, a lustful desire, what do you do? You act on it. It's the same thing as food, they were saying. You're just fulfilling what's natural. What an incredible lie. So they were saying, look at your body. It's made for sex. Why not give in to that? That's what you should use it for. It's natural. One author I was reading said, well, let's think about what's natural in bodily functions. Is it natural to use a bathroom? And not to get crude here, but what an interesting point to the argument it's natural. No, we control other natural bodily functions. What about it's natural to not brush your teeth for weeks and weeks and weeks? Just don't talk to me. It's not natural to shower. But, but we take care of our bodies. And so this whole argument of is natural just falls on its face. It makes no sense. And they go on and their argument goes on to say, but for the Lord, or, sorry, food has been for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. And they had this, this, division between the physical body and the spiritual. And so their, their idea was that God just destroys the body anyway. It doesn't make a difference what you do in your body. That's their argument. And so, hey, if it doesn't make a difference, why wouldn't you? How they think what they believed about the body was affecting their actions. But Paul answers that. They say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. And Paul answers it phrase by phrase, parallels. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Let's look at what the body is meant for. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. If you remember, who created us? God. He created us to be in relationship with Him. To be vessels of worship for Him. He has given us our bodies on purpose for a purpose. And so this idea that, oh, I can do whatever I want with my body is a lie. The body doesn't go away. The body is forever. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord, speaking of Jesus, and will also raise us by His power. And that's part of Paul's answer. That's actually Paul's answer to, and God will destroy both one or the other. No, actually, He won't. Because our bodies persist. We will be raised and we will be in glory with glorified bodies, but still with our bodies, because these are given to us by God to persist as forever tools of His worship and of His glory. And so Paul's answer to their weak, weak justifications are we are meant to do something, but we're meant to glorify God in our bodies. We need Him to live. Just as food is necessary for the stomach to function, God is necessary for our bodies to function. Because we're designed, we're designed and planned and purposed to give Him glory. This whole section, though, 
these arguments about it's natural, you give in to your desires. If you're hungry, you eat. So if you, if you lust, you just give in to it. It's this idea that our desires are supreme. That we just do whatever we feel. And we know that that is a lie. We know that that is false. And so we must, if we're to conquer this area of our lives, we must stop just doing whatever we want and think about what God has purposed for us. A little bit of self-control. You know, one of, one of the ways that I, I encourage you to, to think about starting to practice this, self-control is like a muscle. If you don't do it, you're not very good at it. And the more you do it, the more you're able to do it. And, and so think of your life. And, and this is one of the reasons why I think we're seeing such an expansion uh, of sexual immorality because our culture has taught our young people, it's the me generation, if I want to do it, I should just do it. I should just go after any desire I have. This idea of delayed gratification, this idea that I, I'm not going to give in to every whim and every desire is foreign in our culture. So why wouldn't it expand to the sexual realm? And so I, I would challenge us to start working on self-control. To start working on areas where maybe we can keep our desires in check. And, and do it in, in simple ways. Start with simple ways. I mean, keep in mind the big ways too, but purposely control your desires. Maybe don't eat every time you get hungry. Stay hungry for a while. See if you can do it. Maybe at the checkout line... Pick the longest line instead of the shortest line. It never works out anyway. The line next to you always goes faster. I mean, th- those are, are silly little things, but how can we start to, to train ourselves to not give in to every desire? You know, I came this morning right as the first batch, or just after the first batch of runners were coming. And, and the interesting thing is, in a race, the guys up front probably are in a little better shape than, than the guys in the back. And, and these guys, you could tell they had been training, and they were running, and they were fit. How did they do that? By training their bodies. Paul talks about buffeting his body so he can run the race. But try that in every area of your life. How often do we want, and we take, and we get and we're actually training ourselves to do the same thing in other areas that are sinful. Another thing that I love about verse 14 is that it reminds us that our bodies matter and will be raised. And I think so many times we as well as the Corinthians can forget that we're to serve body not only with ourself, with our inner, serve God not only with ourself and our inner, inner self, but we're to serve God with our bodies. He gave us our bodies to serve Him. In verse 14, Paul is reminding them that they'll be raised. God sees it fit that because He he resurrected Jesus Christ, that He will offer us the same resurrection. We can't do just whatever we want in our bodies. Flip over to Romans 12, just real quickly. Romans 12.1. Familiar passage. I think it helps us think through that God wants us all. He, he wants every part of us. Our bodies, our spirits, our souls. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you catch that? To present what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. My spirit, saying I follow God, cannot be divorced from my body actually following God. The two are are one and the same. To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We cannot separate our actions from our declaration that we love God. They go together. And that's what Paul is reminding the church at Corinth here. We need to move on. But our bodies are designed to forever glorify the Lord. Don't be ruled by your desires. And when we think of sexual immorality, it's all about putting desires above the glory of God. Second point, verses 15 through 17. Sexual immorality in believers brings Christ along for the sin. 
And that should be disturbing. Catch his argument here. Because this is... Man, this this gives you pause. And it is disturbing. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And, And members there are parts of His body. And we know that, that we're members of Christ, but we are parts of Christ's body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so Paul's setting up another logical argument here that believers are are part of the body of Christ. We are members of Christ. We're His hands. We're His feet. We're limbs. And so when we join ourselves in sexual immorality, we we are taking a part of Christ's body and using that for the purposes of sex. Is that disturbing? In fact, the implication goes further than that. The implication is, because I never stop being part of Christ's body, I never stop, as it says in verse 14 there, being united with Christ. I'm sorry, 17. I never stop that. And so the implication is, is as I commit those kinds of sins, I'm dragging Christ into those sins. That should make us ill. It's repugnant. It's shocking how disturbing that is. We're taking what should be used for Christ, making it one with sin. And we see here that sexual immorality destroys not only our walk with God, but it destroys our work for Christ. Because we're taking what should be being used for Christ and using it for sin. This is gut level, shockingly honest. One author said, you're taking the limbs of Christ and making them limbs of a prostitute. Because we're one with Christ and sexual immorality makes us one with that person. And so Paul responds with, never. And it's the, in the Greek, it's one of the strongest negations possible. I would put it in all caps. It would be similar to us saying, you're nuts! That's insane! Are you kidding me? Sexual immorality in believers brings Christ along for the sin. And that should be disturbing. Read through that again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? One, united. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We're tempted to click and see things we shouldn't see. When we're tempted to pursue our relationships, when we're we're tempted to to check out a, a girl or a guy and picture more with them, we're causing Jesus to click. We're causing Jesus to look at those images. We're causing Jesus to be in that relationship. And the dissonance and the divide that happens in our very soul when that happens tears us apart. And I have watched it over and over and over again in counseling as as people that are struggling with this are torn at their very soul because it's repugnant what we're doing to Jesus Christ. May it never be. Never. Another point out of that same, those same verses 16 and 17, number three there is we need to remember sexual intimacy forms a soul bond and a union reserved for our God and for our spouse. One author calls it a mingling of souls. And here, as you look at those verses 16 and 17, you see Paul referring back to Genesis chapter 2. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. 
And he quotes Genesis 2.24 here, reminding us that in the covenant of marriage, in the bond of marriage, something mysterious and something incredible happens. There is a union. There is a uniting there. See that word joined? In verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. The word joined was also used to to refer to something being glued together. It's a bonding. It's a deep bonding down to our very core. There's scientific reasons why that actually happens during sexual intimacy. But when we, when we consider that sexual immorality outside of the God-defined beautiful place of marriage, where it's the highest level of human commitment and there should be a commingling of souls, when it's outside of that, we are joining and we are messing with our emotional bonds. It creates a bond with that person. It creates a bond with that person on the screen. It's a false intimacy. It's a false union. It's a bond with sin, with the fallen world. It's a defilement of what God has purchased, you and I, by His blood. 17 mentions that as well. But he who is joined to the Lord, again, that same word, joined, glued, bonded, in union, becomes one spirit with Him. There is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as casual porn. We're messing with glue. Super crazy glue. And God intended that in the beauty of marriage to bring a husband and wife together, to cement their bond, to help them with that commitment. But outside of that, we're messing with glue. One illustration that really, I really like to sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it's wonderful. Warms the house. Outside of the fireplace, it's destructive and uncontrollable. It burns your house down. Satan is trying to take what God intended as a beautiful cementing of a marriage and use it to destroy us and destroy the church. The images here are disturbing. We're in union with Christ. Let's not also try to be in union with sin. It can't work. Sexual intimacy forms a soul bond and a union reserved for God and our spouse. It's rethinking what we think of sexuality. Number four, we've got to move through these pretty quickly. Stay as far away from sexual temptation as you can. Verse 18, where he goes from there, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And he says, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Stay as far away as you can. It's that important. Because it goes to our souls. The word there refers to a habitual action. Make it your your habit to flee. Keep fleeing. Flee every day. Be on guard. Do everything you can to stay away from sexual immorality. I would argue if it means drastic measures, it means drastic measures. Remember Joseph, Potiphar's wife? She grabs him and and she wants to to, um, be with him. And he runs. He even leaves his coat behind. And he literally runs. What a picture of how we should be about sexual immorality. By all means possible, resist. You know... How do we put that into practice? Proverbs 5 again, talking about the old adulterous woman, 8 and 9. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. It's really practical, practical advice. If you're struggling with sexual temptation at this one girl's house, don't go by her house. It makes sense, right? But the bigger principle is flee, get as far away as possible. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. How are you going to put that into practice? You know, some of the things that, that I do and that Susie and I talk about, um, I, I won't be in situations where I'm alone with the opposite sex. I, I just won't do it. And, and in fact, some of you have come in for counseling. One of my rules of counseling, if it's, if it's a member of the opposite sex, either my blinds are open or the door's open. 
and I've stood up in front of some of you guys and opened the blinds. And I hope that doesn't make you feel weird. It's because I'm going to stay as far away from possible from sexual immorality as I can. Not even a hint. Not even an opportunity. I would go farther than that. I would challenge you that once we are married and once we are committed to that, we should not have any deep friendships with members of the opposite sex. And I have been fought on that. I have been argued with on that. Is sexual purity worth it? Absolutely. And so no other woman will ever know me like my wife does. Guaranteed. I won't let it happen. And if it means that some of you ladies might feel I'm a little standoffish, I'll be a little standoffish. I'm still your shepherd. I still care. But we'll do that in environments where it makes sense. Practical things. My wife knows all my appointments. She knows what I do every day, almost every minute of the day. She's not checking up on me. It's not for fear. It's because we're just going to be open. Flee sexual immorality. I would challenge you that there are a whole lot of ways that we just don't flee. Because the images for sexual immorality come in so many different forms. They come in our TV sets. They come in our music. They come in the movies we watch. One, one author wrote something that I thought was just really helpful. If you wouldn't stand at your neighbor's window and watch that activity, should you watch it on TV or the movies? It's a little creepy to think of watching some of those things we see on TV if I was at my neighbor's house watching. Isn't that a little creepy? What's the difference? Really? What's the difference? And I can guarantee you in the mind of the man, and, and I can't speak for ladies, in the mind of the man, it doesn't go away. It sticks with you. Just as the language does. We are fooling ourselves. We are buying the world's lies if we say it doesn't affect us. How serious are we going to be when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to lust, pluck it out? He's not saying that we should literally get spoons and do that. That's gross. He's saying take whatever steps it takes to flee immorality. Sexual immorality damages us, number five, in our very core differently than other sins. Every other sin, verse 18 Every other sin a person commits is outside his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's something qualitatively different about sexual immorality than anything else we do. And I believe it's because God uses that to create bonds at the very soul level. Soulish bonds. And when we mess with that glue, we are messing with our psyche. We are messing with our wholeness. It damages our core. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And now we get to the antidote. We get to the change in thinking that has to happen. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, body, not just my soul, not just my spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was a temple about? A temple is where the the God of that temple would come and dwell in that temple. Now, Now, one of the most amazing things about Christianity is the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within me. He is there to help me. He is there to interpret Scripture, to help me stay away from sin. My body is a temple because it is it is really the dwelling place of God Almighty. And if we're to start to rethink sexuality and our behaviors... We need to start thinking of this as God's temple. God is here. And it's, it's incredible and amazing and sobering all at the same time. Sexual immorality strikes at the root of our being, because it, especially as believers, because it strikes at our created design to be a temple of worship for God. We are created in God's image and are beings designed to worship Him. Think about the imagery. Think about where He's going with this. Your body is the temple of God, the presence of God. 
So be careful what you do with it. What would happen if someone right now stood up and put a line of coke up here and did coke in front of you? Would you be a little appalled? What if you came in and you saw the verses that we have up here graffitied and completely vandalized? Would it appall you a little bit? Why? Because this is the house of God. This is the place that we come to worship. We've designated this as a holy place to worship. Not that there's anything special about the building, but we come here for the purpose of meeting with the Creator of the universe. And to defile it in those ways is sickening. And Paul says, that's how you should view your body. Temple of God, and to defile it that way is sickening. Last one. God has the title to our lives by Christ's blood So glorify God with your body. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Let me repeat that. God has the title to our lives by Christ's blood. So glorify God with your body. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Into verse 19. You are not your own. That's a different way of thinking right there. You were bought with a price. That price is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so finally, the culminating command, so glorify God in your body. See, it's not just about what we shouldn't do. It's about what we should do and not letting anything get in the way of that. I'm created to glorify God. To to give Him praise. To show other people who He is. That's why I'm created. Really? I'm going to settle for second best and, and, and go down a path that completely destroys my created purpose? Do you see what Paul's saying here? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And he's using imagery that they would have understood from slavery. Because the slaves, when they they received their freedom, they would take a certain um, amount of money to buy their freedom, and they would put it in the treasury of a certain god, whatever god they chose in that city. And then they would become adherents or worshipers of that god. And Paul's saying, God has the title to your life. He purchased you with the most precious substance on earth, the blood of His Son. So glorify God with your body. This verse also screams something else to me that I I want you to hear this morning. It screams forgiveness. Because it says His blood has purchased us, has redeemed us from our prior way of life. And I know sitting here, we have people all over the place. And some of you in your past have things that that you still feel guilty about. God took care of that on the cross with His blood. And He purchased you out of that. And it's forgiven, and you don't have to have guilt over that anymore if you've given that to God. That's one of the things this verse screams at me. And then as we remember that, it keeps us from further sin. It reminds me that even this morning, if someone's sitting here saying, man, Pastor Ron, I struggle with that. You've been bought with the price. You are not your own. And His blood is sufficient. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let your head tell you otherwise. Don't let this world tell you otherwise. His blood is sufficient. On your worship folder, I I concluded with just a number of strategies. and I'll, I'll just read through them. Be busy glorifying God with your every moment. See, if you're busy doing A, it's hard to do B. Number two, saturate your mind with truth. If purity is an issue you're struggling with, memorize some verses on purity. In, in, in Psalm 119, 19 and 11, it says, How will a young man keep his way pure? By hiding God's word in his heart, by, by taking heed according to all that's written therein. Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And I've listed some great verses to start with. Another tool that I want to, to, to encourage you to read is called The Purity Principle. And especially men, I challenge every man in here to read this book. Library has a couple of them. Um, we, we're, we're buying a whole bunch more so that way we can get a, a discounted price. Read it and be challenged by it. I've had every one of our staff read it. And we've determined together that we will be men of, of purity. Three, be captivated by your spouse. Enough said? Be captivated by your spouse. 
Four, remind yourself of the cost of sexual immorality of any kind. Satan will lie about these. The reduced intimacy with spouse, the, the bondage to sin, the damages with the relationship with God, the, the harming our ability to serve God, harming others in the body of Christ, because we're all members of the same body. Five, have accountability with your electronics. Don't isolate your computer. Everywhere I have a computer at home is a place that's public to the family. It's just the commitment I have. Greatest form of accountability is knowing my wife and my kids can see anything I'm doing. That works. <laughs> Challenge you to think of things like that. Covenanteyes.com is, is a, a site that has software that I, I would encourage you, that I would highly recommend as a way of protecting your computer and keeping reports. Leave your phone and computer accessible to your spouse or your friend. Here's the deal. If you're trying to, to private message me and you don't want my wife to see it, too bad. <laughs> my phone lives on our counter at, at, at home, and my wife usually is the first one to see my text messages. Sometimes my kids, so be really careful. <laughs> That's accountability. Susie and I are completely open with our, our accounts, with our phones, with the computer use. Here's the shocking stat. 52% of porn is now viewed through mobile devices. Be careful of your kids. Be careful of what they see. We've gone so far as on, on, on the phones that the kids can use and play games on, we've disabled the browser. Keeps them from going places they shouldn't. My kids are worth protecting. And I will do that. Six, remind yourself of your relationships. On, on trips, take pictures of your wife and family. Put them up. Take pictures of people in the church reminding us that this affects all of us. Seven, make sure you have same gender accountability. Put a couple websites there from Tim Challies. One that I would strongly encourage you to read is called The Porn-Free Family. He gives a whole strategy of how to protect your home from porn. I know we've gone long today. This issue is that important. I challenge us to say we will be a church of purity. We will not let sexual immorality or temptation or desires get in the way of what God is doing here. Because what, what I do affects you. What you do affects me. Lord God, our Father, what, an, what a powerful temptation Satan uses to derail us, to divide our hearts, to draw us away from you. I pray for us in this church, men and women alike, that we would stand for purity that we would do whatever it takes, that we would be disgusted at the concept of sexual immorality because of what it's doing to you and your body, because of what we're dragging you into and because of what it keeps us doing. Lord, I pray for strength. I pray for honesty. I pray for purity in this church. In Jesus' name.